Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Freedom of Limits, which was taught for Lent in 2021. Our culture speaks a lot about freedom, but usually assumes freedom is escaping any limitations. However, true freedom is found not in rejecting limits, but embracing the limits God has placed on us as His created image bearers. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Uh, through what we're calling uh, freedom, uh, the limits, the key to freedom, and we're going to be talking today about freedom as embracing feasting and fasting. And so, uh, as we're looking at this freedom of limits, uh, we're going to be looking today in Genesis 1, verses 29 and 30, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, Genesis 1, 29 and 30, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. You can follow along on the screen, and I encourage you to also look along in your Bible. Hear now the word of your Creator and your Redeemer. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, a few years ago, Linda and I were in uh, the American Museum in the Smithsonian, and they had a whole section on food. And in one area nearby, they actually had the kitchen that Julia Childs used on her famous show, where she was introducing Americans to great, uh, in particular, French food. And what was interesting was there was a juxtaposition, because you move from that into kind of the modern food movement in the 1950s and 60s in America, which featured things like TV dinners. I thought we've kind of gone from the height of culinary arts to the absolute depths in about 15 feet as we moved along here. And much of our modern food uh, over the last half century, 75 years, has really become pseudo-food. If you sit down and you read, if you open some box up and you read the ingredients, you wonder if any of it's actually food or if it's all just man-made processed stuff. Well, as a result of that movement, which really we were kind of central in, but it spread around the world because the food is cheaper and because it oftentimes can last longer and it's very, very quick to prepare. It's not particularly nutritious. It oftentimes can give you all kinds of health problems. It's not particularly tasty, but it is convenient. Well, in response to that, there became what was known as the slow food movement that really began particularly in Italy, and it was a response back saying, this is not real food. Real food should be fresh, you should take time, you should prepare it, you should spend time together, and it was kind of a rebellion against it. But as we are wont to do, we go from one extreme to the other, 
And in the response to the bad food, we not only had the slow food movement, we, we got what was known as uh, the foodies. And these are people who food is always meant to be some kind of wild experience. They're always craving something new and novel and extreme in what they're doing. So you can see from pseudo food to slow food to the foodies, there are all these different reactions to food. And it brings up a question for us, what is the proper human relationship? It's not something we oftentimes think about, but I hope in the next 35 or 40 minutes to show you the scripture has a lot to say about food. And it's actually very, very important for us as human beings. So how do we properly respond to food in a way that leads to freedom and flourishing? So I want to begin by talking about a theology of food. Now, that probably strikes you as a strange statement, a theology of food. Isn't this stuff that we just eat? But actually, the Bible has a lot to say about food. The first thing that we understand right up front in Genesis, the first time food is really mentioned, is that food is a gift from God. Notice in verses 29 and 30, then God said, I give you. Notice it's not just this there. God gives to us every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. So notice there the word give is important. God is saying there is food out there. It is my gift to you. And he gives it not only to us, he gives it to all animals, everything that has the breath of life in it. Now here it's just plants, and you may be wondering, uh, when Noah comes off the ark after the flood, God actually expands that to allow humans to eat other animals, uh, to eat animals as well. But here, specifically in Genesis, we're being told that the key thing is not so much the exact things that we're eating as that all food is a gift from God to us. Now, I bring this up because if it is a gift from God to us, we should never take it for granted. It should prompt gratitude in our hearts because it did not have to be that way. But God specifically tells us he gives us food. And I, if you think about it for a moment, you can recognize that it is actually a gift because Food is not only nutritious. Think about it. I mean, if all you needed is nutrients, you could get nutrients in a way that didn't taste good, didn't smell good, wasn't enjoyable to eat or drink in any way. And in fact, if you read a book like 1984, that's exactly what they've done. They've reduced food down to nutrition, and just reading it makes you not want to eat as they describe what it tastes and smells like there's nothing good about it. But friends, that's not the way food is. I mean, there are aromas. I remember a few years ago, Linda came back from a missions trip in Guatemala and had fresh roasted coffee, and I didn't even drink coffee at the time. But when I got her luggage, it smelled so good. I was like, I want to become a coffee drinker just because that smells so good. And then I did become a coffee drinker. But think about it in those terms. It's God's super abundant gift. It did not have to be that way. But God did make it that way. 
The second thing to notice is God has given us this because it is essential for our life. Notice again in verse 30, God says that everything that has the breath of life in it, that's us and all animals, I give every green plant for food. So everything that's human and animal has to have food to survive. Now again, it didn't have to be that way. Plants don't have to eat to survive. They can take sunlight and rain and just minerals and they produce their own food. You and I are not that way. Go without food and drink for a little while and you will die. And so will I. We must take food in. It is essential to our creation as embodied beings. If we were pure spirit beings, we would not have to have food. But because we are embodied beings, we must take in food to survive. A theologian named Alexander Schmemann, I'm going to put a, a lengthy quote up here, but I want you to hear his summary, and it's kind of these two points, that food is essential, but food is also a gift. As he reflects on uh, Genesis 1 and 2, he says, in the biblical story of creation, man is presented, first of all, as a hungry being, and the whole world as his food. Second only to the direction to propagate and have dominion over the earth, according to the author of the first chapter of Genesis, is God's instruction to men to eat of the earth. Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed, every tree which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, and to you it shall be for meat. Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into um, his body and transform it into himself, into his flesh, and into his uh, into blood. Uh, he is indeed that which he eats, and the whole world is presented as one all-embracing banquet table for man. So notice there what he's saying is, is that we have to take this food in, and somehow it's transformed into us, but the whole earth is there before us, and we are presented as this hungry being, but God has made the whole world a banquet table before us. So food is essential to life because you and I, unlike God, are not self-existent. We must eat to live. And the only way we survive is actually by consuming things outside of ourselves. We, we're not like plants. We can't make it ourselves. Now that's meant to be a lesson which we'll come back to. And so you and I cannot survive long without food and water, so they're an essential part of what it means to be human. When you think of humanity, see, this goes back to, you know, some of the people who want to say, well, our body is non-essential, they would say, well, food's not essential to being human. They're profoundly wrong. It is essential to being human, and it's a constant reminder of our need for God and His provision. And one might suspect part of why they despise the body is they don't like being reminded constantly that they're needy. But our body reminds us of that. So it's not surprising when you think of this, as we think of a theology of food, that food and feasting are important throughout the biblical story. Now as we move into Genesis chapter 2, notice what it tells us 
uh, verse 15, and we could have carried on to 16, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then in verse 16, he says, I'm giving you all these trees to eat from. So notice, the first task we're given in Genesis 2 is to actually garden. It's not just work in general, it's specifically to work the garden, to grow food that we are going to eat. And so this is very close to our creation. It's very central to what it means to be human. And then I'm not going to put all these verses up, but I want you to think with me through the biblical story. So right up front, humanity is told about eating, and we're put into garden. If you, uh, we, we could move. The same thing happens, of course, after the flood. Move forward to Israel in Egypt. After all these years of slavery and God, their creator is going to be their redeemer and is going to bring them out. And what does he tell them they have to do on their final night in Egypt? Have a Passover meal. And then they are going to reenact that meal every year as a central sacrament of their faith. At the center of Israel's faith stands a meal. But it's not only that, when they come out, they're making covenant with God in Exodus 20 through 24. And in Exodus chapter 24, God, for the only time, calls up all the elders of Israel. The rest of the time, it's just Moses. But he brings all the elders up. And in Exodus 24, 8 to 11, we're told that at the consummation of the covenant, the elders sit down and we're told they ate and they drank in the presence of God. They ate and drank basically with God. Now, the Lord obviously wasn't sitting at a table and doing it, but notice there is a meal that is the, in essence, the signing of the covenant. It's the ratification of the covenant with them. If you read in the book of Leviticus, Israel's worship life is centered around all of these festivals throughout the year. Most of the festivals are related to the agricultural cycle, either planting or harvesting. And in virtually all of them, you have to gather together and we eat a feast. In some of them, you're actually told, you've got to bring all of this food and you've got to bring a bunch of wine and drink and everything and you're going to come in and you're going to have like a seven-day banquet before the Lord. Now that's all in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, the time of fulfillment. Jesus comes as the Messiah. And as we read through in John's Gospel, you remember he gives seven signs that prove he's the Messiah. They are these pointers that the Messiah has come. And what is the very first sign? He turns water into wine at a wedding feast. And we'll see why he does that in just a moment. Jesus, as he's preaching, one of his most well-known parables, the parable of the prodigal son, which is a picture of our redemption and when the son who has wasted everything comes home and he's restored to relationship with the father what does the father say has to be done kill the fatted calf we're going to have a feast because this son was lost and he now is found and when when re relationship is restored there has to be a feast as we come to the end of the gospel story, Jesus on the night he's betrayed says he's fulfilling Passover and he gives to the church what's the center of our worship time? The Lord's table, which is the fulfillment of Passover. Not only that, in the resurrection, you remember Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And they're going along and Jesus is unpacking the scriptures to them and saying, how have you missed all of this? How could you not understand that the Messiah had to die and then been raised? 
And the guys ask Jesus to stay with them. And Luke puts it in this very memorable way in verses 30 and 31 of Luke chapter 24. It says that when they sat down and were ready to eat, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, does that sound like anything? The Lord's table. And it says, and then they realized who he was, and he was gone from their sight. And it says they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Luke's way of doing it. He's saying, man, this is the phrase that people use just for a normal meal, but Luke says, it was in this that they recognized Jesus. Well, those disciples rush back, and they're there with the 12, and for the first time, Jesus appears to all 12, and what does he want to sit down and do with them? He says, you got something here to eat? Let's sit down and have a meal together. Seriously, you just were raised from the dead. You've accomplished redemption and you're going to sit and have a meal with the disciples. And Jesus says, yes, what would be more appropriate? And then if we go to the very end of time, we come to the consummation in the book of Revelation, and when Jesus returns and all is wrapped up, what is it that we have? The marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the beginning of us feasting for eternity with God. I, I challenge you, think, human history... And the story of salvation begin and end with feasting and are structured around food and feasting at every turn. Everywhere you look at. You, you can't turn around in the scripture without running into this concept of feasting. In fact, I would argue that one cannot fully understand or enter into the experience of God's work of creation and salvation apart from receiving the gift of food and feasting. If we try to disembody ourselves, we're missing a central facet of what God is doing in creation and in redemption. So that's part of our theology of food. It's not only a gift that God has given to us, it's not only that it's essential to us, but feasting is a central part of the biblical storyline. However, there is another part of the storyline which is that because food is essential, because food is so good, because food is critical actually in the proper worship of God, you can bet it's going to be turned into a temptation. And that's absolutely what we see. Throughout Scripture, food is presented as a potential temptation. So we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and our early part of our story here. And we read, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. See, there's feasting. But uh, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the Lord says there's one piece uh, of fruit here you cannot have. Now what's interesting is, Adam can feast, but he has to obey limits. But notice... It's not the book of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not a written thing. What, how is the test regarding of no, the, the knowledge of good and evil presented to us? Via food. And I would argue to you that's very, very important. And it's not just important because it happens to be there. Let's think through the scripture, just like we went through and saw the feasting. Let's see if food becomes a source of temptation throughout the word of God. Well, we know 
The very first temptation here revolves whether they will eat from the tree of good and evil, and what do they do in chapter 3? They eat. The very first sin involves food. We move forward to Israel. Remember, they're brought out in the Exodus, and Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and what are the children of Israel doing down in the valley? They're having a pagan, idolatrous feast. And they, it says, literally, they got up and they ate and drank, and then they got up to engage in pagan revelry. So make no mistake, the event with the golden calf is centered around a feast, and Israel has blown it. You remember what is probably the most common temptation and failure we see of Israel in the wilderness? What do they constantly complain about? Food, right. We don't have food. God gives them manna. We don't have water. God gives them water. We've got the manna, but we're tired of manna. Can you give us something besides manna? And the Lord says, well, I mean, God, we're told, gets tired of their grumbling. And on almost every case, it's about food. In fact, it's such a temptation. You remember what they say at one point is, oh, the leeks and onions. I don't know why that was such a temptation to them. But the leeks and onions. I would rather go back to Egypt. Is that not what they say? All of it around food. Go in the book of Numbers. Balaam comes down. You remember, he's been hired to try and curse Israel, and he can't. But he still wants his pay. So he tells the pagan king, here's what you can do. And this is repeated in the New Testament by Peter, that Balaam tells him, you can seduce the Israelites via a pagan orgy of food and sex. And it includes both of them. In essence, you can reenact Exodus 32. Just send some women down there, start the food and wine flowing, and you're going to get what you want. Israel will be in trouble. Move to the New Testament, and we find Jesus is out. He's at, you know, the, the spirits come upon him in baptism, and he goes out into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he's reenacting Israel's 40 years. And so it's not surprising to find what's the first temptation? Food. <laughs> Turn these stones into bread. Read through the New Testament. Idol feasts are a major temptation in the early church. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Revelation 2 and 3 have a lot of information about the struggle that believers were having with these feasts that were going on and what they were going to do. So it's not surprising when you consider all of that. And the early church sat down and said, let's try and come up with seven sins that are root vices, that lead and feed into all the other vices. We're not saying they're the worst sins, but we're saying they're the roots that feed the others. And right there in the list is gluttony. It's shocking when you think about it, because, I mean, murder's not on the list. But gluttony is on the list. But there's a lot of wisdom there. They're reflecting on the biblical story and they're reflecting on their own experience and saying there's something about our relationship to food that when it goes awry, it feeds into all kinds of other sins and temptations. So food is never viewed as a minor issue in the scripture, ever. But it lies at the heart of proper worship and also sinful idolatry and rebellion. So, that's a biblical theology of food. How do we apply that today? What does it mean for us today? So I want to talk about embracing feasting and fasting. We're going to look at both of those. 
So the first part is if we're going to apply a biblical theology of food, we need to enjoy food as a feast, not as fuel. A feast, not fuel. Now why I say that is there's one stream of our culture that teaches us to view food as fuel. It's like gasoline for a machine. And then you'll understand that's, that's the only way a culture would have ever come up with TV dinners. Okay, is when it's just fuel. I just need nutrition to come in. Now, this is seriously unbiblical for three reasons. Number one, as I mentioned last week, we should be suspect anytime somebody says, I'm going to make an analogy for a human and you're going to be like a machine because you and I are not like machines. And so we should first off be suspect because we're not machines. We're human beings. And so therefore, to make food like fuel is probably going to run into a ditch. Secondly, food is not simply fuel, okay? Uh, go out, you know, put gas in your car. It never looks forward to the taste or the smell or the texture or any of that. Food is much more than just nutrition. That's one of the reasons we get in trouble with it. And third, if we treat it simply as fuel, it ignores that food is a gracious gift from our loving Father that has to be received with careful gratitude rather than merely consumed, okay? All these reasons when we're viewing food just simply as fuel, and look, I can remember at one point I was uh, lifting weights with some buddies, this was years ago, and I told them, I said, you know, if I could just get a pill where I could pop one pill a day and that would give me all of my nutrients, I would make that deal. It's such a hassle having to prepare food and do all this, and it takes so much time, and I could spend more time here in the weight room. Okay, that was young, stupid Brett. But that was because if it's fuel, then all of that other stuff is just wasted energy. Okay? So how do we actually enjoy food as a feast for our body and our soul, not approaching it as food? Let me give just a few ways. Number one Take time to prepare real food, not junk. One of the reasons we slip into viewing it as fuel is because so much modern food is awful. And it just is. We live by convenience, in part because if I can step back a week, our lives are so out of balance and there's no sense of rest and Sabbath, who has time to actually prepare food? And therefore, I'll take quasi-food, pseudo-food, and then how do you make a meast out of chicken McNuggets? And the answer is you can't. Okay? It takes time to prepare. And so I would encourage you, God created you and I for a feast, not for fake food. Okay? Now, please hear me, and I'll come back to this at the end. I'm not saying it's sinful to stop and get a happy meal for you and your kids. Okay? But I'm saying if that's our regular diet, we're missing a big part of what God has had for the reasons that are going to follow down here. Secondly, to really enjoy food as a feast, we should regularly, as often as possible, sit down with others to eat, family and friends. Food is meant to be shared communally. It is part of what it means in being a human. And as humans, we're created in the image of the Trinity. We are created relational, so it's not surprising. It's much more enjoyable to sit and eat together. I remember when Linda at one point was out in Wyoming helping as 
that there was help needed uh, when our second grandson was being born. So she was gone for six or seven weeks. And so I used to regularly set my iPad or computer up on the table and we would Skype kind of over dinner sometimes because I was like, I just want to have you here with me. That's in part because I'm just a sad human being. But secondly, because I wanted the community with my wife. I was used to having that. Human cultures universally view eating together as one of the key components of community. Think about it. We've removed a lot of this stuff. I mentioned that when you did covenant, you always ate together like the elders of Israel did with God. How do we conclude business deals today? We do it over meal. We, we go to a meal. How do you even do a wedding today? We have a feast afterwards. If you think through what are human covenants, we still have this root and we very, very often eat together. One of the great losses of modern life, and I want you to hear how these things keep reverberating to previous weeks. We're so busy, we don't have time to sit, and so we don't sit and eat as a family. I want to tell you, if we don't do that, we are losing a massive amount. It undermines the family. It undermines our relationship with food properly. It, it gets us in a cycle where there's no Sabbath. The whole thing, it's imperative that we learn to sit down as a family. And not just everybody eating at different times, not just on the run. And I encourage you, even if you're here and you're, you're called to be single, you still should regularly try to get together with someone else to eat. It is better for us to do it. It doesn't mean every meal or every night, but it means it needs to be a regular practice. Uh, let, me, uh, let me give a couple of quotes here from a couple of theologians that tell us why this is so important, how we're created to eat together and how it's pleasing to God and brings joy to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his great little book, Life Together, which was written for the underground seminary he was leading uh, while the Nazis were in charge of Germany. And Bonhoeffer wrote this, the fellowship of the table has a festive quality. Through our meals, God is calling us to rejoice. Okay, see, that doesn't work if everybody's eating at different times and I've got my 99-cent heart attack in a sack as I'm driving down the road. There's no community there's no rejoicing together. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, said this, The sun looks down on nothing so good as a household laughing together over a meal. See, when we're too busy and we don't sit down together, you're not going to feast. It's going to be fuel. I'm just shoving it in. And I'm missing what God is trying to do. And it gets even weightier because the third part is Food is meant to be an occasion where we take time to give thanks to God. It's meant to regularly cultivate gratitude. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's dealing with one of the first heresies in the church, and it was related to Gnosticism. And notice what he says here in verses 3 to 5. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods because they're against the body, Okay which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. 
See, Paul said, see, these Gnostics, they don't want to celebrate in food. They don't want to feast. They think the way to spirituality is abusing the body. And Paul said, no, it's not. Everything God made, can you hear the echoes of Genesis 1? It's all good. And it's meant to be received with gratitude. We're meant to feast. But we're to do it with gratitude. And so Paul says it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is where the habit of giving thanks to God comes from. I urge you, if you don't have that habit, you should give thanks to God every time you sit down at a meal. Linda and I, in the evenings, pray before our meals. It's when we pray for our missionaries as well. So when we sit down and have our meal, we will sit down and we will give thanks to God and we will pray for touch of Christ just every single day. It's a regular habit and it builds gratitude. And what it starts to do, see, this is one of the reasons that this is so weighty and God wants us to do it. When I'm doing that and it's a regular practice, I start noticing all the other things God has given me. I live because he's provided food. I live because there's air. I live because the air has the right amount of oxygen in it. I live because I live in a temperature that my body can do. I live because radiation from the sun. It's almost like it was set up this way. Almost. Like it was designed for human life. Let, let me get my tongue out of my cheek here. See, God has done all of this, and every time we give thanks for our food, it's a reminder that, you know what, as Paul said in Acts 17, he gives all men life and breath and everything else, and we start noticing it. Next thing, food, if it's feasting and not fueling, points us to our ultimate hunger, our need for God and his word. See, this is another reason why this is where it keeps getting more and more important each step. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is recounting Israel's history. And he's recounting that God gave them manna. And he says this to them in Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that verse should sound familiar, even if you didn't know it was in Deuteronomy, because who else quoted that verse? Jesus, at the temptation in the wilderness over food, quoted that verse and said, no, 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 what I really need is the word of God. And he hasn't eaten in 40 days. Let me trust, you know, trust me, he's hungry. But he's saying that hunger pang, every time it strikes, it reminds me first, I live by the word of God. See, if all we do is fuel, you don't think that way. I have a hunger pang, I fuel. I have a thirst pang, I fuel. But if we recognize that we live by the word of God and by God himself, it's a pointer back to us every time there is a hunger. And it'll completely escape us if all we're doing is eating in an unthinking manner, fueling rather than feasting. And this leads to the final point, which is that our meals are to remind us of the feast towards which all history is moving, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what we're meant to think about. Because this is where we're going, and it's not just you know, lest you think that that was just a metaphor there in Revelation. In Isaiah chapter 25, we're given a picture of what eternity is going to look like. Okay, so think back a couple weeks ago, we're body and soul. 
Okay, this continues into eternity. So here's how it's described, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. If your picture of heaven is you won't need food anymore, you're not thinking biblically. The actual picture is the food you've had here, the best food, the best wine or whatever drink you like that you've had here in the shadow lands, you're going to get there and say, this is real food. Oh, the wine I had there was nothing compared to what I have here, and it's going to last for all eternity. A couple of other quotes by theologians. Tim Keller and the prodigal God said this, the climax of history is not a higher form of disembodied consciousness, but a feast. See, that's where we're heading. That's where we started in Genesis, and it's where we're heading. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Heaven, says, the life, uh, this life gives us foretaste and glimpses of the next life. When I'm eating with people here, enjoying food and friendship, notice the communal aspect, it's a bridge to when I'll be eating there, enjoying food and friendship. So friends, all of these are how we do it. And let me remind you, this doesn't mean that you got to sit down and make fancy food. It doesn't mean that tomorrow i got to take a two-hour lunch break and pop out a stove and cook some French meal. It doesn't have to be every meal. It doesn't have to be fancy. But it does require an attitude. When I eat, do I feast or do I fuel? Because if you're fueling, you're opening yourselves up to all kinds of temptations. Second uh, thing in applying the word, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. And that is, a biblical theology would teach us that we should periodically practice a full or partial fast. Now, if you have health reasons, you may not be able to practice this for a while, although you might be able to practice a partial fast. Let me explain. In Scripture, fasting includes avoiding all food, and sometimes you can read where Daniel just avoided certain foods, certain what it referred to as more delicacies that he didn't have. And sometimes it lasts for part of a day, sometimes it lasts for a whole day, sometimes it lasts for a longer period of time. But it means I'm restricting. It means that in a garden full of all this fruit I can have, I realize that one's going to be restricted. I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to do that. Now, why would we do that? If we've talked all this about feasting, why fast? Let me give several reasons. Number one, fasting curtails the temptation to gluttony. And I'm a firm believer the early church fathers were right. Gluttony is one of the seven root vices. We did a whole series on the root vices a few years ago. You could look up. Uh, they really do feed into all of our other sins. And gluttony uh, I defined it this way after studying it. it. was gluttony is a disordered love that excessively craves food and drink, attempting to fill spiritual hunger with material fare. You're created with a hunger for God, and gluttony is when the hunger in my soul is making me shove stuff into my face. And in particular, I'm usually fueling, trying to fill that hole in my soul. And fasting reminds me in the face of gluttony, I'm more than a body. 
I'm a body and a soul. And I have a soul, and it has a hunger, and no amount of eating another plate full of food is not going to cure the hunger of my soul. Only God and God's Word can do that. And so true freedom requires I attend to both body and soul. And friends, this is an ever-present danger for every human being, and particularly in our culture. If you just look around, we are given to gluttony as a sin. And you can be bone thin, please hear me, and be a glutton. You absolutely can be. It means I've got an improper relationship. And if you're fueling rather than feasting, we're committing gluttony. Second aspect, fasting reinforces the fact that freedom is found in embracing the limits set for us by God. The whole thing that we're talking about in this series, remember from the very beginning, is that it's in embracing the limits that we find freedom. And our culture says, don't do that. So our culture would say, well, why would you want to fast? Well, because it reminds me as I'm going through the fast that limits that are set by God are actually for my good. It reminds me that true freedom is not found in indulging every desire. And if you skip a meal or two, what do we find our body doing? I mean, shouting, right? I mean, I, I am, you know, it can be that I never was hungry. I didn't care about it. But, you know, you fast one day and everybody in the office is bringing in donuts and brownies and all the stuff going on, right? And you find out how quickly it's like, man, my body craves stuff. Whenever I fast, I'm never hungrier. But it's a reminder to me to say, you know what? I'm not ruled by my desires. I'm ruled by the Word of God. And gratifying every desire leads to bondage, not freedom. And so fasting is helpful because it gives us the chance to discipline our appetite. I'm not going to put the quote up, but C.S. Lewis observed years ago that for most of human history, because of nature, we had to curb our appetites. Because if you lived in England and you wanted strawberries in January, guess what? There are no strawberries in January. But see, through technology, you can have strawberries in January. And what Lewis said is we're the first generation that is saying, rather than curbing my appetite to match nature, I'm going to curb nature and make it match my appetite. That's a rough path to start heading down. And fasting is a way of saying, not going to do that. I'm going to follow God's limits. Third thing. We fast to spend more time in God's Word and prayer. We fast from to feast on. It's not just, you can find people now that have realized that fasting is a good idea, all kinds of secular people, and they give all kinds of reasons that completely miss the point. Fasting is so that I can fast from food to feast on God and His Word. It's not about just skipping a meal. It's about spending more time in the Word of God or in prayer perhaps just sitting quietly before the Lord, but I'm devoting the time that would have been taken over here so that I can feast upon God and His Word. And then the last thing for fasting, and I think this is particularly important for our culture, we fast to renew our ability to properly feast. If you notice in the church calendar, again, the things that the church developed over the years, Lent, like we're in right now, is a season of fasting. 
And then it's followed after Easter. Actually, you may not know this, but traditional Christians don't allow fasting between Easter and Pentecost. You're in a season of feasting. You're not supposed to fast at all. Feasting is followed by fasting. Well, one of the things they've discovered, I love uh, listening to podcasts and reading books about the brain. One of the things they've discovered about humans is we suffer from a, uh, a, a process that's known as the hedonic treadmill. Now, we all know what a treadmill is, right? Where you just get on it and you're moving and you're working except you're going nowhere. Hedonic refers to hedonism, which goes back to pleasure. And what they've discovered is this. We get acclimated to things that bring us pleasure. And so when I do this activity today and it's a 10 out of a 10 on a pleasure scale, and then I do it again tomorrow, it's a 9.5. And then I do it again and after a while it's an 8 and then it's a 6. And what do I have to do to get back up to the 10 on the pleasure? I got to start doing more of it, right? Isn't this exactly how alcoholism and drug addiction works? Same thing happens with food and the pleasure we have. There's something in us that periodically we got to do a reset. This should sound pretty similar to what we were just talking about last week. All of these things tie together, okay? Just like we need a weekly reset and even actually a daily reset for rest, that there's a Sabbath, we also need a reset regarding food. Because if we don't, what we end up doing is overindulging. We're like the foodies I talked about earlier. We're chasing this, and God says, you're trying to fill a void that'll never be filled by another plate of food. But fasting lets that get reset to recalibrate my ability to enjoy everything that God gives. And that includes food. It also includes other activities uh, that we can sit down and do. So this is why the church always had it. There was a lot of wisdom. It amazes me sometimes what the church kind of figured out 1,500 years ago and science is now kind of catching up and explaining why this process actually worked. So I would encourage you this day to pick something and fast from it. Food would be one particular item, but if you're in a, a medical place where you can't do that, maybe it's a particular type of food or drink, or maybe it's some other activity that you do. I shared, you know, for recent years, every Lent, I just simply go off of social media. And it is, it's a huge reset on that. I don't know if that's exactly hedonic because I don't know how much pleasure it is, but it is a reset on what you do. And there are other things I've done. I, a few years back, just stayed away from one particular type of meat throughout Lent. It was amazing. The next time I had that at the end of it, it was like, wow, I have never wanted a pork chop so bad in all my life, okay? It wasn't something I took for granted. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table now. And as we do this, it's our communal feast. It brings up all the areas that we're talking about because it's communal. It's a feast for our whole church family. This table in many traditions is called the Eucharist. And what does the word Eucharist mean? Thanksgiving. It's the giving of thanks. That's why we come to this table to do it. It reminds us that our ultimate need is God, that He is what we need. And then finally, as I'm going to quote in just a minute, every time we do this, we do it until He comes. Because it's a pointer forward to 
the ultimate feast that we're going to eat on that day. And so I encourage you today to come and join into the feast that the Lord has prepared for us. And I simply will begin with the scripture today out of Psalm 34. As we're going to come to the table, I invite you to, oh, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you've got the package, you can go ahead and open up for the bread. And let's focus on our true need for the true bread of life, Jesus. Gracious Father, you provide all things richly for us to enjoy. Food and drink, family and friends, and the treasures of this world. These are all gifts of your grace, pointing us to you, the great giver of all we have. But like our father Adam, we have given in to wayward desires and ingratitude. We have longed for forbidden things or inordinately desired the gifts of your hand as if our joy could be found in them apart from you. We confess that we often stop with the signs of your goodness and do not penetrate to the reality behind them all, which is you, our gracious God. Today we take this bread, not as an end in itself, but as you have given it, as a sacramental sign pointing us to Jesus. So we feast in faith, not upon mere bread, but upon our deepest need, the true bread of heaven, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you declared that you had long desired to eat your final Passover meal with your disciples. And on that night, you transform the shadow of Passover into the reality of the Eucharist we now enjoy. For in you, all the shadows of the old covenant become reality. Today we give you thanks for your blood, the blood of the true Passover lamb, which has cleansed us from all our sin. In taking this cup, we proclaim that you are the, alone are the true life and that all other gifts merely point us to you. So we take this cup in faith, claiming your promise that whoever comes to you will never hunger or thirst, 
but will feast with you forever in your kingdom. Friends, take and drink. Friends, let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. And as always, I encourage you to join in, uh, even if you're not praying the words with me, crying out to the Holy Spirit to empower us. Holy Spirit, today we have feasted upon the Word and at the table of our Lord. As we go forth from this place, strengthen us by grace. Remind us each day that the deepest longings of our soul can only be satisfied in Jesus. Turn us each day this week from the temporal to the eternal, from the sign to the reality, from the gift to the giver. And we ask that you would open doors for us this week to reach people that we know and love and care for who are trying to fill a need for you with mere created things. Give us the chance to testify of Jesus, the true and living bread of heaven, the true satisfier of the human soul. Lord, work this reality in and through us this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may God give you of heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine with the choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and the favor of the Lord your God until you sit at his feast on his great wedding day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, you are blessed. Feast and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.